We're in Isaiah. We are going to start chapter 24 tonight, and this is a shift in subject. What we've been talking about the last several chapters is in the context of the Assyrian invasion, and we've talked about that lots and lots of times, so I'm not going to go over that, but the prophecies and the oracles that we've been going through up till now have been with respect to how people have behaved in the context of the Assyrian. Now what's going to happen is we're going to shift and we're going to go to end times. 24, I think, through 27 is known as the apocalypse of Isaiah. So he has been fairly local, and when I say local, within a few hundred years of his own life, he's mostly been talking about. Now he's going to go deep. I'm going to take a digression and then we'll come back. One of the things I said last time is that one of the things that happened in Tyre is the king of Tyre dispossessed the priests of Baal and set up his own god. And since then, the priestly class and the religious cult was under the control of the king, you basically didn't have two competing power centers. You know, one, the priesthood, and the other one, the king. They were all integrated under the king. And that turned out to be a tremendous commercial advantage. One of the things I speculated about was Jezebel. Remember, she married Ahab and brought with her hundreds of priests of Baal. And I said, I wonder if in the process of reforming the religious life of Phoenicia, that Jezebel got married off to get her out of town and... It turns out the timing of that is actually fairly close. Jezebel, of course, is after Solomon's death, when you have the northern and southern kingdom split. But given that she worshipped Baal and brought a whole flock of priests with her, it is entirely conceivable that the king of Tyre wanted her and her priests out of town. In other words, when the king changed the system of worship and brought worship of this other god under control of the government, so everything was sort of unified, that doesn't mean that the worshipers of Baal just sort of evaporated into thin air. They would have continued to exist. And in those kinds of circumstances, there is always, to put it delicately, friction. Because the priests of Baal would have been used to being major power players and would not have been happy having their authority and so forth usurped by the king with his new god. And the timing is reasonable. It all happened within a century or so, which in biblical time frame is not a big deal. I mean, it certainly is in human time frame. But to have the king of Tyre replace the priests of Baal as sort of the official state religion, and those guys not having gone away and are causing trouble and rumbling around and grumbling and causing division and so forth, to have the opportunity to have a priestess or a daughter of a priest of Baal and a whole bunch of her priests shipped down to Israel and married off, I can see that happening. It's not biblical and it's not historical, but given the timing and all that kind of stuff, I can see that happening. So what happens to Tyre is Tyre is never conquered until Alexander the Great. But as I said last time, Tyrians are not fighters, they're merchants. 
So when the Assyrians are in control of the mainland and everything else, the king of Tyre just says, okay, what's this going to cost me? So they don't ever get conquered by the Assyrians, but they do wind up paying them tribute. But Nebuchadnezzar and the Assyrians both did try and take Tyre. They besieged it. They weren't able to do it because Tyre is on an island a little bit offshore, so they were able to take the mainland suburbs of Tyre, but they were not able to take Tyre itself. But in other passages of scripture, talking about Nebuchadnezzar besieging Tyre and everyone wearing his head and shoulders bald from bucking against Tyre, and it eventually says that Nebuchadnezzar will get his wages for the siege of Tyre. The Neo-Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar lasts precisely 70 years. So this may very well be talking about the Babylonian attempt to take Tyre, which is 100 years or more after the Assyrian attempt to take Tyre, and neither one of them succeed. So what this may be is at the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre, and she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. And as we said last time, that reads very much like the fall of Babylon in Revelation, where it says Babylon, Babylon has fallen and she's prostituted herself with all the nations of the earth. That seems to be a metaphor for a trading nation. Carthage on the northern coast of the Mediterranean was a Phoenician colony. And they did, in fact, go to war with Rome, mostly over trade. The business with Hannibal and his elephants over the Alps. Hannibal was a Carthaginian general, which means that he was a Phoenician. And they were bucking with Rome over sea trade and all that kind of stuff. Rome finally prevailed and destroyed Carthage and salted the earth. But again, the Phoenicians are more a trading people than they are a warring people. Hannibal seems to be something of an anomaly, and the only reason he got as far as he did is he figured out a way to take elephants over the Alps and attack Rome using elephants, and that just sort of freaked everybody out. In fact, you know how the Romans finally defeated elephants? What they did is they took pigs and they set pigs on fire, and they ran flaming pigs at the elephants, and the elephants freaked. They coated the pigs with tar or something like that and set them on fire and pointed them at the elephants. And these flaming pigs ran through the ranks with the elephants. The elephants panicked and all sorts of chaos. They were trampling their own army and all that kind of stuff. But that's how the Romans defeated the elephants. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to go all those places. If the 70 years refers to the duration of the Babylonian Empire, then it would have been at Belshazzar's feast in the book of Daniel, when Babylon is taken over by the Medes and the Persians. Do you remember in the Daniel toward the end, Daniel is reading prophet Jeremiah, and he's realizing that the 70 years are almost up. So that time frame, biblically. All right, can we go on to chapter 24 now? So as I say, what we've been talking about up until now has been with respect to the Assyrian Empire and the destruction of the northern kingdom and Assyrian hegemony over the region of the Fertile Crescent all the way down to Egypt and 
Israel was essentially a vassal state. So now in chapter 24, what my commentary says is known as the apocalypse of Isaiah, we're going to go deep, which is end time stuff. So chapter 24, behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. It shall be as with the people, so with the priest. As with the slave, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. Obviously, this list of pairs is by way of demonstrating that nobody is going to be exempt. Now, one of the things that we'll see in just a minute is there are, in fact, going to be people left. So one of the things that I don't know whether we've talked about before, but certainly worth mentioning, especially as you are dealing with Bible literalists, the Bible deals in hyperbole all the time. In other words, the commentary is saying it's probably referring to the time of the tribulation. And in fact, not everybody is going to die. But it says, everybody's going to die. That's biblical hyperbole, a way of speaking and writing not intended to be taken literally. So figuring out when biblical text is to be taken literally, as opposed to when it is hyperbolic, you need to take it in context. And what he's saying is, as with the people, so with the priest, which is to say, the commoners and the priest are both going to be taken out. And as with the slave, so with his master. It isn't just going to be the little people that are taken out, it's going to be the rich people. And as I was reading this, you remember back when we were doing Proverbs a couple months ago, there are two competing Proverbs. One proverb says that riches are a strong fortress. But another proverb says that riches are no protection at all. And what we discussed at that time, which is correct, is during normal times, Riches are a protection. So if you get your tire blown out, it's going to cost you 150, 200 bucks to get it replaced. If you got 150, 200 bucks in the bank, then it's an inconvenience. If you don't have that in the bank, then it's a disaster. Because not only can you not afford to repair your car, but you probably can't get to work, and there's going to be a cascade of events that are going to happen as a result of that tire. So for the poor, losing a tire is a disaster. For the rich, losing a tire is an inconvenience. Here, what it's saying is, is the second proverb, wealth here is no defense. As it will be for the rich, so will it be for the poor. And your wealth will no longer be your strong city because you are dealing with a planet-wide disaster or in the case of the Babylonian or the Assyrian invasion, you're going to be up to your hips in hairy Babylonians, and it isn't going to matter whether you're rich or not. You're going into exile. So those two proverbs are both true, but they apply to different circumstances. And I'm reading this, and those things came to my mind. So verse 3, The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Two things. And as I was reading this, what I was thinking about was Romans 8. And I'm in verse 18. 
For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation of self will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning under the pains of childbirth till now. So as you're reading back in Isaiah 24, verses 4 through 6 have that same feeling. As God is dealing with the wickedness of humanity, the earth itself is groaning because of the wickedness of humanity. And then verse 5, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Now what is that talking about? This is not talking to the Israelites. This is talking to the whole world. Yet God is holding against the whole world violation of some covenant. Now, the rabbis would say the Noahide laws, establish justice, refrain from blood, those kinds of things. And that may be true. However, having said that, I'd like to pop it up a level. One of the things about Torah that we've said in the past, which is worth repeating, is Torah is a system of laws that are designed to make humanity thrive, which is why socialism is designed to destroy because it's almost like Torah. And it's very seductive because people think they ought to be able to make it work. But it's designed to be a counterfeit, which means that it always leads to misery and death. Torah leads to life. So it is entirely possible that the nations of the world, just as they in fact have, are systematically violating, for lack of a better term, the Ten Commandments. Because there's stuff in the Noahide laws that is encapsulated in the Ten Commandments. Don't murder, for example. So it is entirely possible that what's going on here is that the wickedness of humanity has become so great that God has decided to deal with it. And it is not the case that he is dealing with them for having acted out of ignorance. In other words, he is holding people responsible for something they should know. Because when he says, you have violated the everlasting covenant, you can only have a covenant if you know you're in a covenant. A covenant requires reciprocity. I'm making the covenant with you, you're joining the covenant, we're in a covenant together, so cool, the covenant is now binding. Covenants transcend generations. And one of the things that happens when Israel makes a covenant with God is that it is binding upon them and their descendants. And there is no any way in the covenant to get unchosen. So thing number one is it transcends generations. So if grandpa went off the reservation, changed his name to Smith, and denied everything, that doesn't mean that you are not still under the covenant. Blessings and cursing both. Things come with being born. And my favorite example, which I'm sure you've all heard, is every little girl wants to be a princess. Well, the thing about being a princess is your older brother may decide to marry you off to the Prince of Poland in order to get peace in Silesia. And that goes with the territory of being a princess. So 
There's lots of stuff that just goes with the territory of who you are. So that's sort of thing one. Thing two is there are people in the world who are not covered by the covenant with Israel. Not Hebrew in any sense, way, shape, or fashion. Pure Gentiles of one stripe or another. Since this event is covering all the earth, and what God is saying here is the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. So I'm assuming that is not the Torah. And the only other covenant that is made with humanity is the Noahide covenant. Now, Adam was under some instructions which he violated, which made God grumpy. I mean, don't get me wrong. But the word covenant shows up in the context of Noah. So in that sense, all of humanity is under that covenant, and there are provisions to that covenant, primarily establishing justice, no murder, those kinds of things. One of the things that God says when he is giving the land of Israel to the Hebrew people, he says, don't get too big for your britches. Don't assume that it is your virtue that is causing me to do this. It is not your virtue. It is, in fact, the iniquity of the people who live there that I can't stand anymore. So I'm going to use you to destroy and displace them because I can't stand their behavior. Again, you're talking Noahide covenant there because those people are not under Torah. That's given to Israel. There have been generations of people who have been miseducated, but at some point you become responsible for your own ignorance. And what God is saying here is I am holding humanity responsible even those who claim that they are ignorant. Let's go to Romans 1. That's a good place to fetch up. And I'm going to pick it up down in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. What Paul is saying, and in fact I was reading, I think it was Blog and May Blog, he's a Calvinist, but he's fun. He had a sentence, a thing that is made implies a maker. A piece of engineering implies an engineer. In other words, everything that exists implies something that made it come into existence. And the idea that something comes into existence randomly is just fatuous. So people who hold to that are doing so in what I would call aggressive ignorance. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to argue about it. So they are aggressively ignorant. But at some level, they know that they're fools. They just would rather 
do their own thing than what is implied by acknowledging a creator. Regardless of whether you think that creator is Yehovah or something else, but failure to acknowledge a creator and failure to acknowledge that as a creature you have obligations to your creator, regardless of which religion you espouse, by espousing randomness, what they are doing is deciding that they want to be autonomous, which is a law to themselves. That's what autonomy means. I'm going to be a law to myself. And what God is saying is, nice try, ain't going to work. And that's what this passage in Isaiah is talking about. The other part of that, by the way, is in places like the United States, Great Britain, Europe, those kinds of places, every atheist in the country knows the gospel because this is a Christian country. In other words, the majority of the country is Christian and our festivals and all those kinds of things are wrapped around the story of Christ. So it is not the case that anybody in the United States has been denied an opportunity to hear about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, there are places in the world where people have not had that opportunity. And as I started to say earlier, I believe those people are going to be held to the Noahide laws. So, verse 5. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled, the noise of the jubilant has ceased, the mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing, strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down, every house is shut up so none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. <laughs> All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. So when you get to the point where we're out of wine, it's getting serious. Yeah, why is the rum gone? And again, this feels very much to me like Revelation. It isn't keyed like Revelation is keyed to three sets of seven. So Revelation is keyed to seven seals, followed by seven trumpets, followed by seven bowls. All of this stuff is sequenced. This isn't without sequence. So it isn't clear what order this occurs in or what's causing it. In Revelation, you have things like mountains falling and water turning into blood and plagues of darkness and demon frogs and all that kind of stuff. Here, it's just sort of a general, oh man, everything is going to pop. And it isn't keyed to any specific event other than God has caused it. So verse 12, desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. So the idea here is this is among the nations. This is not specific to Israel. And you all know how they are harvest olive trees, right? Spread a sheet out underneath them, and then they take sticks and whack the branches so the olives fall. So an olive tree being beaten is a harvest thing. But the point is, once the olive tree has been beaten, the olive tree is empty. 
Once the grapes have been harvested and gleaned, then the vines are empty. So the idea here is that the cities are desolate and empty. And the metaphor there of olive trees and vines is simply by way of saying that's how empty they are. Not that the earth is piled up with olives on top of your sheet that you're going to take away. It's just that when you come to the olive tree now, there's nothing there because the olives are all gone and the grapes are all gone. So when you come to these cities, they are desolate and the people are all gone. Verse 14, they lift up their voices, they sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord, they shout from the west. Therefore in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise and glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away, I waste away, woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed with betrayal. The traitors have betrayed. Not sure who's rejoicing here. Obvious inference is believers who have gone through this and survived. So what Isaiah is doing is looking at this event in the future, seeing all this desolation, seeing that within that desolation there is a remnant who is faithful to God and that remnant is rejoicing and giving glory to God. But Isaiah looking at the entire scene is weeping. Sort of like, well, okay, we know that Christ is going to come back and he can put everything under his feet, but there's a whole lot of tears that happen between here and there. And Isaiah is looking at all of that and he is weeping to see what is going to happen even though the righteous are going to rejoice in the midst of it. This very much feels like the regathering of Israel, but it feels later than that. In other words, it's far more desolation going on than simply the regathering of Israel. Verse 17, terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. This could very well be when the heavens are rolled up like a scroll and we have a new heaven and a new earth. Isaiah's vision is not tagged to sequence like John's vision is in Revelation. In Revelation, we get a very clear sequencing of stuff and it's very easy to understand. You wind up at the same place, but the process of getting there is not so obvious. The windows of heaven are open. What does that remind you of? The flood. When the flood comes upon the earth, it specifically says the windows of heaven are open. But God has sworn that he will not destroy the place with a flood again. So we're not talking specifically about a flood here, but we do have an echo back to the last time that God destroyed the earth. And I suspect that that's a literary device where he's recalling your memory to Genesis and what happened the last time the windows of heaven were opened up. And in the flood, of course, it was rain and water. No telling what it's going to be in this case, 
but it's the same metaphor. Verse 20, the earth staggers like a drunken man, it sways like a hut, its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and it will not rise again. So this feels like back in Romans when we were talking about the whole creation groaning as it awaits the return of the Messiah. It's very common in the Torah for Moses, speaking for God, to call heaven and earth as witnesses. So the idea that the creation is a witness between God and humanity is all over the Bible. So the earth staggering like a drunken man, swaying like a hut, its transgression lies heavy upon it. So the transgression of the earth is a function of the people who inhabit it, I think. That's a guess on my part. The grammar doesn't say that, but it makes sense to me. So verse 21. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. One of the things that we talked about, if you correlate Ephesians with Corinthians, where there's a mystery that was known to God that was only revealed, and if the powers and principalities had understood what was going to happen when Yeshua was crucified, they would not have done it. In other words, God has a covenant with Israel, and the powers and principalities can't do anything about that because that's a done deal. But what they're trying to prevent is the rest of the world from coming in. And if they had realized that the crucifixion of Yeshua was going to allow the Gentiles to come into the kingdom of God, they never would have crucified him. And the way it reads is this is something that's known to God from before the foundations of the earth, but it has been kept secret from the powers and principalities in heaven. What that tells me is that God is dealing with a rebellion in heaven, and there's stuff that he has kept secret from the heavenly beings, specifically what was going to happen when they crucified his son, because had they known that, they would not have done it, and the rebellion would have continued. So, the idea here that this is an end-time event, new heaven and new earth territory, where God finally deals with the rebellion that he's got going on in heaven, as well as dealing with the rebellion of humanity on earth. And he will deal with those in heaven in heaven, and he will deal with those on the earth on the earth. So he doesn't bring heavenly beings down or take earthly beings up. He deals with them in place. So they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. And we see in the book of Jude, where you have the angels that didn't keep their place. They are being held in gloomy darkness in the center of the earth until such time as God gets around to dealing with them. This is very reminiscent of Jude. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. And after many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And his glory will be before his elders. Where do we see his elders? Revelation. And again, it's not nice and sequential like Revelation is. But it's very much the same concepts. Revelation. 